Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we will continue our conversation on the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy VI. When last we left our heroes, they were at the Returner's hideout getting, I don't know if you'd call it a prep speech from Bannon, the leader of the Returners. <laughs> Certainly they were getting a speech about the sad state of the world, about all of these horrible things that have gone on with the encroachment of the Empire across multiple continents, with this looming threat, and Bannon makes it clear to Terra in no uncertain terms, that they consider her to be their only hope, their last chance to win the war. He uses a Pandora's box analogy, basically telling that exact story and finishing with the only thing left after all of the hate and greed and anger was a single ray of light, hope. And that is supposed to be Terra. So no pressure. Yeah, to, to which Edgar responds, uh, Bannon, he just screams his name. And it's funny because we've just come from Edgar and Locke being maybe pretty insensitive about maybe Terra's not a human or how can you do this crazy magic and already causing their own version of like, maybe you're putting a bit much on this girl. But then Bannon goes one extra step way over the top and Edgar's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There are a couple things I want to talk about here before we jump into what happens next. Uh, one, the characters in Final Fantasy VI, and if I recall correctly, the characters from 6 through 10, 11, uh, maybe they do in 11, maybe they do in 14, uh, they kind of do in 15, but they're not referred to as the Light Warriors. Uh, Noctis is referred to as the King of Light, right? Right. Uh, there's, did you see that new trailer for like the Shadowbringers or something for Final Fantasy fourteen? Right, yeah. So there's a little bit of Warrior of Light there. Well, there's plenty of Warrior of Light stuff in Final Fantasy XIV. It's all okay. over the place in okay. that. So the Warriors of Light are a big deal. Uh, but, but they don't do it in thirteen or twelve right. or ten. Maybe they do it in nine, but not eight or seven and, and not here in six. And the people at Final Fantasy Union actually have this great video on the evolution of the Warriors of Light trope and argue, I think, pretty convincingly that it shows up in all of these games. And that's kind of what we're going to point out here is that while they're not called the Warriors of Light, there are lots of things to suggest that that's exactly what they are. And one of them would be that Bannon refers to Terra as our... Hope, light hope, hope of light, ray of light. <laughs> or light hope. Uh, there are also a lot of parallels to this moment in a lot of our favorite, especially spec fic in, in fantasy or science fiction. Pretty famously, Princess Leia telling help us Obi-Wan Kenobi, you are our only hope. I'm a big fan of Neo as literally the one, the prophecy Morpheus tells him like very early on in a similar conversation, explains the war, every terrible thing that's happening and says, and it's on you now. Yeah, yeah. So that was the other thing I want to bring up is this trope of the chosen one. Uh, so you mentioned Neo. There, there's obvious uh, Messiah parallels between Terra and Jesus. We've mentioned that before. Uh, you know, everything was put on him in those stories. Who are some other, the one, the chosen one, Anakin Skywalker does not work right. out well for that dude. Steven universe. For those of you who like that show, uh, he's sort of a chosen one type, Harry Potter. Absolutely. A chosen one. Azora high, though we don't know entirely what that means yet still in game of Thrones, but the prince who was promised or the princess who was promised. I was going to say, these are mostly dudes. Uh, yeah, that's one of the things that we see a lot, right? It is mostly dudes, but not not here. In fact, pretty interestingly, the entire trope is flipped. So not only is the savior a woman, but the Eve or Pandora in this case, the person responsible for unleashing all of the evils, is a man. So a little more complicated than many other stories, where man is strong and woman is conniving. Yeah, and, and Steven Universe is a little more complicated than that. You should really watch that show. Oh, and... I should. You know what else? Uh, She-Ra, the new She-Ra Netflix, she's very Chosen One-esque. Right. And then obviously we see this a lot in the myths that inspired many of these stories, whether it's Hercules or... What's his name in Norse mythology? Um, Thor. 
No, Sigurd. Oh, Sigurd, yes. I was, looking, yeah. I was going for uh, Hemsworth. You were going for actual Norse <laughs> mythology. Chris Chris Hemsworth is an actual chosen one, though. I think we can I'm agree I'm pretty on that. sure <laughs> a lot of these gentlemen have been chosen for something. Yeah, well, in Captain America, there was sort of a... He's not really chosen by destiny. It's who he is inside the whole idea that sure. you know, he's just a good kid who doesn't necessarily consider himself the chosen one is ironically what makes him the chosen one. And that's actually exactly at play here with Tara. Right, right. Well, we could spend all day, all episode, paralleling chosen ones with Tara. And I love that this element of it, too, that this thing that the game does, which is allow you to make the decision whether to answer the call or to do what Joseph Campbell would say is the better route, the more traditional, you know, the one that fits better really into the... I guess Jesus is the other one you could call as the main. Obviously, that's the 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 prototype for uh, the concept in a lot of modern storytelling. Refuses the call at first, and sure. you can choose to do that with Terra. Oh yeah, and a lot of the characters we just mentioned do that. Luke Skywalker, who was not Anakin, but you know Luke Skywalker's like, I can't go with you. I have to help my uncle on the farm. No one's like really uh, got sand plants to take care of. I guess yeah, moisture farming. <laughs> I don't, still don't know what that means. Yeah. Someone will yeah. know. Someone will let us know. So yeah, uh, refusing the call is is a, a traditional part of a lot of these stories, and you can. And if you do it three times, you get a special item. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what do you get? You get the Genji glove. Is that? I can't remember exactly what it is. That sounds right, but yeah, you get a pretty powerful accessory early on in the game for repeatedly refusing the call, uh, which is interesting. It's also not the first time in this game where your sort of failure to do what might be considered the best or the most heroic thing in the situation actually provides the more interesting outcome. And I'll re-mention that again when we get there, but right. well, eagle-eared <laughs> listeners will know what I'm talking about. And you mentioned, uh, you know, what, what would a, a Final Fantasy hero do, whatever, what, would get a Stark killed? You said that right. a few episodes ago. Right, right. <laughs> okay, yeah, so I looked it up. If you agree to help, you get the gauntlet, which is a fine relic, allows you to use two hands on an item and or on a on a weapon that can be two handed used and uh, deal more damage. But you do get the Genji glove if you refuse uh, three times, and that is just a that allows you to wield two weapons. Anyway, it's much cooler than the gauntlet. Yeah, yeah, much much cooler yeah. than the gauntlet. <laughs> All right, so, uh, so what happens next? Either way, yeah, I, either way, uh, as empires tend to do, as we discussed in our Empires versus Rebels episode, they oftentimes take that decision out of the hands of the would-be hero, whether that's by blowing up their uh, moisture farm. Yeah, their moisture or, farm. <laughs> yeah, or, or uh, as we mentioned, they burn down the town, Typically at the beginning of any empire type episode, uh, you know, you need to be convinced by the great wizard that they are going to show up in Hobbiton. And so you have to save the Shire. And something similar to that happens here, where just after you've made your decision one way or the other with Terra, a troop of the Returners bursts into the room, lets everyone know that the Empire is on their way, that they know where the Returner's hideout is, and that they have taken South Figaro, where we've just come from. So they are encroaching fast. Uh, and then the man falls down and dies, which I think is a purposeful reference to the Battle of Marathon. Yeah, I was just going to wonder about that. Nicely, nicely said. And he, the phrase he uses is, the Empire cometh, which is a reference to the Iceman cometh. So whether you decided to help Bannon or not, once we hear about what's going on in South Figaro and that the Empire's coming, uh, Locke first volunteers to go to South Figaro to slow down the Empire, while Bannon, Terra, Edgar, and Sabin will travel north to Narsh, uh, taking a raft down the river. Terra, I, I don't know, like if you refuse to do it, I don't think Terra exactly says, okay, I'll help, but she doesn't uh, object when when everyone goes north and so our heroes uh are, are splitting up Locke's going to go south to south Vergaro, everyone else is going to go north to narsh and we're going to speak to the frozen esper and hopefully convince the espers to help us defeat the empire because Terra can talk to the esper 
and they're going to help fix the world. Terra's going to help fix the world, and the way she's right. going to do it is by talking to the Esper. What exactly that's going to mean? Like, does Bannon assume that that Terra and and the Espers will align their political beliefs with Bannon's? Do they even know that there are other Espers out there? That there's a whole other realm? No. I think they must. I don't think they know what's going to happen. I guess right. Like I think their plan is as goes as far as she can do magic. Uh-huh. There's a magical being there. Maybe if we put them together, we can do something. But I thought maybe they were just going there to defend it because they knew the um- empire was coming to take it. Well, she definitely wants Terra to talk to the Esper on his behalf. Okay, that's made clear. So. Locke leaves, but before he leaves, he gives Terra a little advice. He, without naming names, don't let some lecherous young king, I don't know, put his hands on you? Not that I think he would, but you know, don't let him convince you to have a one-night stand? What exactly is he warning Terra off of? I, I think, or, or going the other way, don't fall for his charms and fall in love with this guy. He's... You know, got a a lot going on and we need to be focused on the task at hand. It could be as innocent as that, but uh, it definitely pokes a little bit of a hole in our Edgar as Batman theory. Because as much as it may be a a bit of a put on, and I still do think there's some of that, uh, even in private amongst the closest of friends in literally the secretest secret room, Locke is still going... Uh, stay away from the the nineteen year old, would you, pal? Right, right. But but isn't it also a little bit that Locke has a bit of a crush on her and maybe doesn't want her to fall for Edgar because she he he wants her to fall for him. Always, I mean, Locke falls in love with every beautiful woman he meets as well. He should. <laughs> and, I suppose in a world so. With so much darkness and terror and. And horror, as long as you're treating them with respect. I, I, I kind of dig the way Locke kind of just falls for every girl he meets. Uh, and Edgar, I think, is similar, but goes about it in a different way. And so, yeah, maybe it's Locke saying, hey, you know, don't let the guy with all the money and the charm and the smile and the good looks get to you. And the talent yeah. and the brilliance for <laughs> machines. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm doomed. Right. I have no I'm gonna chance. I'm going to go cover my face in dirt and sneak into <laughs> a city and steal some people's clothes. Oh, God. Well, yeah. Okay. So, lot goes south. Uh, <laughs> everybody else, or at least our uh, Ban and Terra, Edgar, and Sabin, uh, go north. It sort of implies that like the rest of the Returners sort of scatter. And we don't really see much of them after this. Yeah, that's a good point. That's something if this was being adapted for modern times, I'd be curious to see what happened to them, even if it was just one quick scene where they're all killed, or most of them are killed well, I think by the Empire. But there, there is, I'm pretty sure there's at least one in the, uh, in the world of Ruin. Right. So there are, there are some vestiges, but we don't see much of the organization, the Returners, after this. Right. I'd also be curious to see how a scene like them going down these rapids in their raft could be interpreted into a more modern setting. Well, it would have to be done because we absolutely cannot skip over the character of Ultros. Right. Don't tease the octopus, kids. (laughs) So, uh, Ouch. Seafood soup. (laughs) So these four are on their their raft. There's this kind of neat little uh, trick you can do if you... I can't remember which direction you have to pick, but there's a loop. So if you pick, you know, as you're going down the river, you can pick up, down, left, right, or whatever. Uh, And if you pick left at one point, let's say it's left, uh, you go in this loop and you can just keep leveling up. So that's kind of neat. But eventually you will will encounter uh, this malevolent octopus named Ultros, and you'll have a fight with him, and you'll get to control Bannon, which is cool. Uh, Even though there's no magic, he has this heal ability that works on everybody for some reason. Yeah, that's fine. You defeat Ultros eventually. He is Ultros, by the way. Can is he a fourth wall breaker? Does he know he's in a video game? He certainly uh, talks like it sometimes. Though I can't pull a, a line to mind. Does even don't tease the octopus kids. Like, is he calling the party kids or is he talking to the player? I assumed he was talking to us as kids. I did too. We were kids. 
but right. but maybe and not. We may have to get back into it more when he spoilers shows up later in the story. But uh, I, I remember going through on a recent playthrough and thinking that for the first time that Ultros knows he's in a play or in a video game in an opera, which lends more to that sort of overarching theme we've been talking about. Maybe so. It's also interesting that in a world without magic, this is a monster that can talk. Uh, he's not he's not an esper, which is what all the other monsters who can talk are. Yeah. Yeah, he's a Deadpool. Yeah, I think, I don't know, we'll examine that further as we go along. Maybe we'll give an episode to the examination of Ultros throughout Final Fantasy. Wow, that'd be fun. It's also fun to note that they are traveling down the River Leth, and that's a reference to Greek mythology. The River Leth is one of the... Excuse me, Leth. The river Leth is one of the rivers in the underworld. It's the one uh, that makes people forget things. So if you fall into the river Leth, you forget everything. And during the encounter with Ultros, a member of our party does indeed fall into the river. All right, but he's not the one with memory problems. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) He's one of the few people that kind of has his stuff together to this point. And I suppose it's supposed to be read that Sabin is sort of battling off Ultros down the river to allow the rest of the characters to get away? Yeah, kind of. Like, so, so you win the fight, and then there's this odd moment where, like, like, he grabs Terra and she runs away, and then he jumps into the river after Ultros to beat him up more, I guess. And so right. he washes down one way, and Bannon, Edgar, and Terra continue to travel north downriver toward Narsh. And here we get the first splitting of the party. Uh, Like you mentioned before, when we would have this sort of, you know, it goes to black and then, uh, oh, you actually mentioned this in the Chrono Trigger episodes where we would get this narration by a goblin of how the grandfather paradox works. Well, Right, this is very similar to that. Yeah, a Moogle shows up, possibly Mog, and says... Okay, you know, the, our, our, our heroes are going this way, that way, and the other. And then you have to choose uh, between one of the three ways. You will get to play them all. So, if I could play the role of Mog for a moment. Drew, which way do we go? Do we join Locke in his adventure in South Figaro trying to slow the Empire? Do we join Edgar, Terra, and Bannon traveling north to Narsh? Or do we... Uh, perhaps follow Sabin, washed away down the river, and the longest chapter. Yeah, you know, uh, I love this mechanic so much. I oftentimes, we, we've mentioned several times that we've considered how we would turn Final Fantasy VI into a, a television show or a series of movies. And this is one of the moments I oftentimes think about how cool it would be to have different directors or different aesthetics for the tellings of of these three stories that we're about to get, especially Locks, where I feel like you could just do an episode in black and white, film noir, all of that. But what's also funny to me about this, which is as much as it puts the power in the hands of the player, I think you and I have almost always done it in the exact same Uh order. Yes, we have. (laughs) And I think it just makes the most sense because the person, we know where Locke is going. Right. And what he what his goal is, we know where the others are going up to Narsha, Edgar and Bannon and Terra. We have no idea what's yeah. about to happen to Sabin. And if it's your second playthrough and you do have an idea about what's about to happen to Sabin, you probably even more are ready to walk down that path because this little mini story arc he gets here from. I think where we're going to branch off now and start talking about what happens to Sabin after he washes away after the, the fight with Ultros. It's just one of my favorite mini arcs in any of these games and in any television series I've seen. It's just so beautifully done. The characters we're about to meet, the the short path back to the others we're about to take... Uh, really, it just is. It's it's one of my favorite arcs in any Final Fantasy game ever. Yeah. 
So Sabin washes ashore. Uh, there is a small domicile nearby. The important part here is there is a ninja mercenary lurking outside the domicile. With his doggy. With, with his doggy. And his theme music. <laughs> like, and his, literally. And like, his theme music. Almost feel like he should be playing an instrument there. Uh, I imagine, yeah. Like, so it's it's really interesting. The ninja as a as a cultural icon, like the ninja as a historical uh, phenomenon, is not the same as the I, I don't know the sort of modern concept. Yeah, yeah. But in the same way, neither is the historical cowboy and the modern right. way we think of cowboys. And shadow feels to me like a mixture of both. Yeah, and I think that's completely on purpose. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, he is—he has the shape, the shape. He has the costume and the skills of a of a pop culture ninja. He's all in black. He throws things like they do in Final Fantasy. But that theme music feels to me like a western. It is. The whistle is very similar to like a like a spaghetti western. The most famous one being the beginning of the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Right, right. But. It's another great reintroduction to a character. We've talked about that a lot. He'll do it more than anybody else. He he mentions at this point that uh, you know he's going to tag along with Sabin uh, just to see you know what happens next. He's he's seeing kind of all this crazy stuff happen with the Empire as well. But he tells him like, look, I I go whenever I want. I, I come and go as the wind pleases. Or no, that's not quite right. <laughs> he says. He says, I come and go like uh, like the wind, uh, right. as I please, and so you know, I'm going to hang out. And there's actually a cool game mechanic that backs that up, where if you dilly-dally for too long during this section of the game with Sabin, at one point, randomly, Shadow will just leave. So, uh, like you said, you can wander around a bit if you want, but you really shouldn't dilly-dally if you want to keep Shadow as long as possible. You can make your way south to Doma Castle. Doma Castle uh, appears to be the seat of power for some kind of a kingdom here. Uh, never really get into it too much. But Doma Castle is not an ally to the Empire. And we know that because there's an Imperial camp outside Doma Castle laying siege to the castle. So there's really not anywhere else to go. Uh, we Saban's trying to get back to his friends. Also, there's this Imperial camp here and the Empire is the enemy. So they decide... Of course, a big bear of a monk and a couldn't care less ninja infiltrate cowboy. ninja cowboy. They infiltrate this imperial camp, and here is where we first meet uh, a character who I really wanted to be part of the party, but is not. The imperial camp is under the command of General Leo Kristoff. Yeah, one of the best NPCs in Final Fantasy history. Again, like I was saying a moment ago. The characters we get introduced to here, there's so much depth, so many layers to this character. And we hadn't seen a ton of generals on the other side who are not portrayed as being evil or even particularly bad. Yeah, I think the new Star Wars movies do a really good job of showing us, hey, here's Finn. You know, he he was raised by the, not the Empire, the first the First Order. Uh, and he's not a bad guy, but still a lot of those dudes are. Um, right. They're, they're just not... They, they don't, there's not a lot of sympathy for them. But here we have Leo. He seems like a good dude. And uh, then he really strikes us as a good dude because it, there would be, there's a way to break this siege without having to uh, expend a lot of energy. And the way to do that would be to poison the water but leo is not having it leo says no we're not doing that that's horrible we will we will hold this siege uh we'll just you know we'll we'll keep them here we're winning anyway we're not gonna poison everybody yeah in fact even the scene the conversation that shadow and sabin over here that introduces them to general leo is him framing it to one of his own soldiers on who's you know ready to give up his life for the empire and he's saying you know he's kind of giving them that we don't need you to die for your country today we're not trying to get 
all these people killed. I'd have to go tell your family that you're dead. Like, right. we can conserve some energy here. We don't have to do the awful thing, and we don't have to do the stupid thing. He's still very much a general of the Empire, and he's laying siege to Dalma Castle, but he's clearly working on a code of ethics. Unfortunately... Uh, <laughs> Someone <laughs> else isn't? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So eventually, Leo, General Leo is going to be called away. But before that can happen... So before we get to uh, who might be poisoning whom... Uh, and and who might be being relieved of duty here at this siege? There is a there is an attack going on. Doma Castle is being attacked. There are some Doma Doman soldiers out front fighting Imperial soldiers, and and our guys who are fighting the Empire are maybe not certain that they can uh, take care of things here. But we're introduced to a new character. Just as the the king of Doma is starting to say, you know, I feel overwhelmed and, and he's getting a report from probably a captain who'd been on the front lines here from off camera, if, if you will, from off screen, uh, we get a single line of dialogue, which in the original Super Nintendo version was a moment, sir. And that is our slight introduction before our introduction of Cyan. Garamande? I don't I don't know where they came up with that last name and it doesn't sound Japanese and he is often drawn as a Japanese or certainly at least an Asian looking man, an older gentleman, not older <laughs> he's like in his 40s but compared yeah, to all of our 17 yeah. year old heroes <laughs> right. he's got a great mustache phenomenal, great yeah. suit of blue body armor, very regal long black hair Back in a ponytail like a samurai. Yeah. I think he is meant to parallel samurai. I'm pretty sure that's his class. If, if you... Uh, right. You, you know, when they, when they assign them classes. Yeah, he is a, he's a really cool character. Another character with a cool theme, which I imagine you're going to edit to play in right now. I'm sure it's playing behind us, yeah. <laughs> Faithful retainer to his family's liege with the courage and strength of a hundred men. For a short sentence, there's a lot in there, and that's pretty great. You, you get a real sense of, yes, faithful, loyal, his family's liege. You had to have the word family in his introduction. And and you get, obviously, that notion that he's a courageous and powerful warrior who he will continue to be for your party for the rest of this story. And then he proves his courage and strength upon the body of the empire uh, when he goes out there and takes down the Imperial commander, it breaks the attack. Any surviving Imperials run away. It's a very uh, Achilles versus Hector kind of moment, right? He sort of rides out in front of the walls and challenges the commander, defeats him in single combat to scatter the troops. Uh, I This is a scene that you almost couldn't do wrong in a modern telling of this story. It would just look awesome. Just Cyan emerging from the castle, preferably at sunset. I don't know. Sure, uh, sure. <laughs> some fun lighting going on and then a, a, a moment of single combat that plays out beautifully. So the next thing that happens is Leo Kristoff, the general in charge of the Imperial Siege, is called away. We don't really know why. I have wondered if maybe Kefka faked uh, the message. I have wondered if he was called away because his forces were defeated by a single samurai. It's not clear to me why Leo's called away. Maybe, I mean, maybe it is clear and I just don't remember. No, I think it's supposed to be left open to interpretation, whether it was Kafka or even if it was still Gestal at this point, maybe not believing that Leo had the, as they might put it, guts to do what needed to be done there, uh, that they were wasting his time. Maybe he was even just called away to 
other matters. We know that the Empire now knows where the Returner's hideout is and that they may be able to launch an all-out assault on Narsh, and so they might be calling General Leo back to take something more important to task than the siege of this one castle. Whatever the reason is, uh, as is oftentimes the light, uh, the way in life, it ends up being a, a, an incredibly costly moment. Yeah. And ju- just to further that for a moment, if it was to uh, have Leo lead the charge against the Esper in the north, he doesn't. It's Kefka who does that. And perhaps right. Kefka was put in charge of that because of his because of his success in breaking the siege at Doma. Because Kefka has no such compunctions about not poisoning uh, an entire river, and he just dumps that like these barrels full just right in the river. And I'm, I'm pretty sure there are some Imperial soldiers who are objecting. We're like, what? Well, we were told not to do this by Leo, and Kefka's like, you want to burn to death, mother? Yeah, because <laughs> I will burn you. With a lighter. Yeah, I think that this scene is almost perfectly executed and just how haunting and memorably horrifying it is. The way the water turns that horrible color of like pinkish purple. But I, I do think if I was going to make one addition to it, and who the hell am I to suggest such a thing, is I would have seen a couple of Imperial soldiers go down from the poison as well. Sort of uh, King Longshanks and... Braveheart, you know, fire down sure. the arrows. Well, we're going to hit our own soldiers. And he says, well, we'll hit, we'll hit theirs as well. Right. Right. Well, presumably <laughs> the uh, the Imperial camp is using that river for their water source also. They're right on the river. Right. So I assume members of the Empire die in this, but we don't see any of them. I don't sure. believe. And so I, I think that could have driven home even more how mad Kefka truly is. Right. So we see this poisoning happen because our our heroes see it happen. Uh, remember, we've got a ninja and a monk trying to infiltrate this base. And they're like, you, you horrible, horrible person. What do you think you're doing? In fact, Saban says that's inhuman. He, yeah. he calls Kefka subhuman, which is correct. And they, they, they try to chase him down. There are some weird comedic moments in the middle of all this yeah. horror. Because Kefka runs away. Right. And uh, he doesn't appear in battle as his crazy, weird, magical, infused versions as he would later. He's just his little sprite. And he just says crazy, weird things like, wait, he says, do I look like a waiter? And runs off. Yeah, this is like the son of a submariner. Yeah, just throwing out more one-liners of with like PG dad humor, but that they're coming from a clown who's about to poison hundreds of people makes them sinister in a way. It's, yeah disturbing the whole scene is disturbing so now we go back to doma and we see people suddenly reacting to having been poisoned presumably uh you know it's been a little while people have have been drinking the water of course because you have to to survive correct right (laughs) uh but then they they start to like grasp with their stomachs and and wince and fall over somebody falls off the wall at one point uh, and then we go into the castle. And so the king is dead. His family is dead. He sees his wife dead first. He goes to the bed. His son Owen is dead. He, like, pulls him from the bed. Even just these little sprites, it is heart-wrenching. Yeah. Uh, and there's a, a line of dialogue. I can't remember if he says, oh, my, or oh, dear. But it's so... <clears throat> it's just heartbreaking. The the way yeah when the when the little boy rolls out of bed, clearly dead and 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 he can't think of anything to say other than, oh my. Uh, because because what could you say? Uh, and then there's a another line of dialogue that was changed in future iterations, and I can't remember. I don't have it right in front of me what it was changed to, but this was one change I didn't like. Uh, it, it maybe felt weird, like a word that people wouldn't use in this situation but cyan after seeing his king dead his wife dead his young son dead yells the word in the original version idiotic yeah and i think that's right i i honestly i would want again if we were making the tv show i would have the character say idiotic because it's just this outburst of this doesn't make sense 
you could maybe say insane or this is insane. I don't think, I, I don't know. This is a man grasping for anything to say or feel or do. And that moment that goes from so quiet to him saying one word to the rage yeah. that builds in the man that we have just seen. We've, we already know, they've shown us what he's capable of in single combat as a great warrior. We know he, it's all about his loyalty and his faith to his family and to his liege, and they are gone. Rushes headlong into the enemy camp in one of the most, I still get shivers thinking about it. I still get emotional thinking about it. It's, he's ready to join the dead yeah. of rage and anger and retribution. And he's just going to take as many empire people as he can with him. Everybody he knows and loves has been killed. For, for a man like Cyan, what is there to live for at this point but revenge? Uh, which is a bit bleak. Uh, and I think part of his arc is finding something to live for. But Absolutely. in this I moment... Mean, we, we talked about him as a, a samurai. And in samurai faith, you are supposed to be a protector of someone. And if that someone dies, you are no longer allowed to be called samurai. You are now ronin. So our, our other heroes, Sabin and Shadow, can jump in and help Cyan. And in fact, you have yeah. to. Uh, <laughs> They're going to maybe not let this guy get himself killed. Right. Uh, so, so they help Cyan. And then, uh, I mean, we are surrounded at this point. So Cyan comes to his senses a bit. Uh, you know, it's time to escape. So uh, they climb into some Magitek armor, which for Cyan is perhaps not the best move because he doesn't really... How do these iPhones work? I don't understand. Is this a mouse? Right. How do, I, I have to click? I don't get it. It did remind me uh, of scenes later on as, as I replayed it of like Last Samurai, right? Of the old world people who were still from that old world and now there's this new world of technology, the guns and all of that. And he's just going, wait, what? Yeah, it would be like handing a samurai a rifle. Sure. Times twenty, right? Because <laughs> you get a, a rifle he can drive, a rifle he can drive. Yes, and there's probably Magic. a touch screen. Yeah, <laughs> a, a rifle you can drive. <laughs> Gosh, we're good at this. Yeah, uh, and and what else is great here too? I think it's funny. People talk a lot about in fiction, you know, tone is the tone even enough, or is it right enough? And things are often heavily criticized for having humor out of place or being too mournful and sorrowful but th there's actually some pretty funny elements to cyan not being able to deal with the machine right after we've just had this you know horrible tear-jerking moment in this extreme rage and then right after it there's a pretty effective couple of moments of comedy that's when you know you've got a really good story going so our trio escape the imperial camp and make their way to a perfectly innocent forest where nothing spooky ever happened and everything is fine. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. That doesn't <laughs> sound quite right. As a sort of as like a Harry Potter, the giant spiders. Why, why, did it, why does it have to? Why couldn't it ever be the, you know, fluffy bunnies? Yeah. I can't remember exactly what the line Professor, was. why do we have detention in the forbidden forest? Yeah. Why, why can't we have detention in the it's okay to be here forest?
much like, again, to bring up the name in, in Joseph Campbell's work, uh, part of going into the wild is a, a very big part of understanding your heroes, understanding the world that you're in, and oftentimes a forest filled with mystical and magical creatures is uh, an important element to that. Probably one of the best ever is Princess Mononoke, where there's a, a going into the wild moment for a character who's just lived kind of in one village for the whole time. And there's nothing quite that spectacular in the Phantom Forest, but for something that's really not there for very long, it sure leaves a hell of an impression. Yeah, absolutely. There, This is a big crossing the threshold moment. There is that going into the mystical world moment and they and they really do here they leave uh they leave the regular world for a while so there is just uh there's this fun bit where it's just this this neat uh forest scene uh and there's trees in the foreground and trees in the background and you can get lost you can end up having to go through this section a couple times uh there's also a, a recovery spring which is nice you can go up to the water and regain your hit points and a gorgeous one at that. They really pushed the bounds of the Super Nintendo with scenes like this. And again, it shows you, like, why choose to make this so artistic looking? It looks different than a lot of the other maps in the world, which you just kind of see from top down. There are some others that get great attention, too. But this one place where, you know, our characters are just kind of trying to find out what happens next, noticing that there are ghosts, maybe trying to recover for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the level of detail is just remarkable. Eventually, we make our way to a train station. Always a good sign when you're in the middle of a haunted forest. Right. So there's not... This is the only place there is still a train, and uh, it's made pretty clear that the Doman trains haven't run for quite a while. And yet, there's a train here. Sabin being who he is... Anything that would around. get a Stark killed. Yeah. <laughs> Anything that would get a Stark killed. So he's going to go look around. Uh, and Cyan's like, what? Yeah. We... yeah, Cyan's not having it. Shadow seems largely indifferent. <laughs> well, Shadow seems largely indifferent. But he's probably he's not really. Cool. Yeah. Because of his history, which I suppose we'll delve into when we get there. Right. So they believe that they have now boarded a train that's probably just been sitting there for years and years. They're looking around and... At one point, Saban starts to go, wait, I think I, I think I've heard of what this is. And then all of a sudden the train starts up a look of sheer horror comes over the face of Cyan. Poor guy hasn't been through enough. And right as the train starts to move, Saban comes to the realization that this is something he's heard about in myths and legends, a train that takes departed souls to the other side. stuck on board with a bunch of ghosts. Yeah. And if they can't figure out a way to get off this train, they might be taking an early trip down the river Styx. Yeah. And considering we just went down the river Leth, I mean, that's two of the Greek rivers right there. (laughs) Right. Uh, It is interesting that for a man who was ready to die at the hands of Imperials, Cyan is not at all happy to be on this train. He's not he, he hasn't given up in that way. That is, he he doesn't want to sit on a train and die. He would prefer to die in combat if it's going to happen. Right, right. So uh, this is a fun dungeon. Uh, you got the train sound, that, that rhythmic kachunka kachunka sound, and really neat music. Again, the musical cues in this in this game are as much a part of the character as anything. Right, and again, it puts us into a space because it's got that sort of Western rambling. It's just got a very turn-of-the-century feel to it, and as is often the case, a, a real mix of Eastern and Western, but instead of Japanese and European, it's Japanese and Western Americana, and the train has 
a look to that, and the music sells yeah. it. And so you're just put into this place that is maybe unlike any other in any Final Fantasy game, in, in any fantasy or science fiction. This is a unique setting, and that's tough to pull off. That that piece in particular, that song, sounds to me like it comes from an old record player or an old gramophone. Like, if the if the atmospheric noise wasn't the train going over the tracks, it would be the hiss of a of a record player. Yeah, and and it even kind of sounds like something you might have heard an old style band around that time playing aboard a train or in a train station. It kind of warbles back and forth. It's just perfection. So it's not a particularly long dungeon. You do fight a bunch of ghosts. You can uh, ally with a ghost, so you have yeah, four you party members. Yeah, you can join your team. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It's got the possess ability, which if you use it, will kill whoever it uh, is used on, but then you lose your ally ghost. So I never really liked to use it. Yeah. So you, you decide to make your way to the engine because that's where you can you know stop it so that you don't uh, end up on the other side. Uh, on your way, there is a spot where you can... Oh, where you can eat food. Yeah, there's a whole weird, again, a comedic scene in the middle of this actually pretty scary moment going on. But this scene where Saban decides to have the ghosts bring him a meal. And it cures him. It heals, heals up all your statuses. It is also worth noting that a character you only see two or three times throughout the game does show up here. His name is Siegfried, as opposed to Siegfried. He's kind of uh, a Gilgamesh type character yeah i think if i was redoing this i would have just made it gilgamesh yeah he he talks a big game but he you never fight him he he uh oh no you do fight him uh but you beat him easily and he runs off with whatever piece of treasure you were trying to get out of that particular train car right so eventually it becomes obvious to the denizens of the train that you're trying to stop the train so the whoever's in charge uh, which it turns out is the train itself, basically commands the ghosts to try to stop you. And so there's this neat thing where they're they're coming after you and you're running away. And then you get up on top of the train and you run and you jump and then you disconnect a car so they can't come after you. Yeah, fun little action sequence. They're yelling or saying, I assume very slowly, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, no yeah. escape. <laughs> which I think is a little... More scary than brains. <laughs> Just a little bit. Uh, eventually, you can make your way to the engine. You have to click a couple of switches. And then you find yourself running in front of the train on the tracks, fighting a train engine. And this is where you get one of the best scenes in a Final Fantasy <laughs> ever, where Sabin suplexes a train engine. Yeah, okay. So, first of all, objectively awesome. <laughs> the other thing that's pretty objectively awesome about this battle, too, is that because the train is undead, like with any other undead creature, you can just kill it in one hit if you throw a phoenix down at it, which I've always loved the cleverness of that. It, it's never gotten old to me. But, okay, if we're, okay, Mr. Adapter, Mr. Co-Conspirator on adapting this into a television show or film, uh -huh. or even a modern video game, how in the hell? Yeah, good question. Would you, because you also can't, de like, I thought about this more than any person probably should. <laughs> right. Because um, I thought, well, you could just end the battle with Sabin performing some incredible feat of strength and it and he just kind of rips the train off of the tracks or something like that but you like it has to continue to be on the tracks for All the right. next thing that happens in the story hang on let, let me ask you are you are you suggesting we actually have them fight the train in our adaptation see that's the thing i don't know that you could i <laughs> yeah. think you would have to do something else and that would be so sad because it really is Super memorable. Anyone who's ever played this game can remember when the characters hopped out there on the tracks and were running backwards away from the train and then turning around to try to fight it. Like, it's incredible on the Super Nintendo to behold. But I think, yeah, we would have to change this around somehow. Uh, just, just another 
admission that when you're adapting things, sometimes there are things that, that need to be changed. And it's not even because they weren't good before, but I, I think you'd have to figure out a different way for them to have a battle. Try to make some homage because it's a it's a classic moment. It's a well-known moment that Sabin suplexes the ghost train. Right. And it's just a it's a, the whole thing is cool when the ghosts are coming after you and you're running away and you're fighting and you're running along the top of the thing and you jump and you do the other thing. All of that is great. Oh, you have to have the train for yeah. sure. I just but don't fighting know. Fighting the train engine is Yeah. yeah. I don't I, there might be a way to do it. You could have the train engine manifest somehow. Uh Yeah. You could have there be maybe there's a conductor or a captain or something, and and you. Fight I, I think that. that's probably the route I would go is is make it a, a conductor or a captain because either way, at the conclusion of the battle, you don't really defeat or kill the ghost train. That's not what no. happens. You, yeah. Uh, come to an agreement with it. You essentially prove that you are powerful enough and worthy enough that the ghost train decides. Okay, I'm not going to take you to the other side, but I can't stop doing what I'm doing. It's, I guess, sort of a force of nature in that way, right? right? Uh, but I I have to make a stop to, to right. pick up some more souls, and when I do, I, I will let you off. Right, right. Which is reasonable. Right. Uh, however, as we <laughs> just said, the, the big group that died recently was everybody in Doma Castle except for Cyan. So I don't know if everybody else saw this coming, and maybe if I was older when I played this, I would have seen this coming. Because you're right, it didn't happen that long ago in the story. Right. But this hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. Because you've only, again, we've kind of had a, a, a total change of tone. All those tonal changes helped serve the story. We went through some comedy, we went through a little bit of horror thriller, we went through a little bit more comedy... Uh, just some action. And then we're reminded that this guy who's just been through all of this with us, his whole family is dead. And then he sees them boarding the train. Do you remember Spirited Away? And there's that scene where Chihiro gets on the train to go to Swamp Bottom to talk to uh, the scary, mean old witch's mm-hmm. twin sister. Right. And it this... It's it's such a beautiful scene. It's very quiet. Uh, it's got some of those similar train aesthetics, but everybody on board appears to be a ghost. And there are times where people get on and people get off. And there's this part where you where you pass a station and it doesn't stop, and there's like a little kid waiting there. Right. If we're adapting. Final Fantasy VI, I would want this scene to parallel Miyazaki's brilliance as much as possible. Yeah, I I think so. And you certainly couldn't be, you know, accused of totally copying it because this story did actually come first. And I think is meant to exist in, in much of that same space. And uh, it's it's so beautiful because it gives Cyan a moment that he didn't have with the death of his family and all of his rage and his need to exact revenge that he has a chance to say goodbye. And And of course, he didn't have that in real life because he didn't know when he woke up that morning that his wife and his child would be dead. And so who knows what his... His last words were to them. So as much as this is a heartbreaking moment where he almost has to be thrust back into the memory of this horrible thing has happened and, oh yeah, this is my life now and I can't believe it, he does get one opportunity and uh, I can't remember exactly what he says to his wife, but he tells his son Owen to take care of his mother as the train kind of rides off into the darkness. And then he just stands there with his head down at the end of the platform. And you can just wait. You can wait forever because the game yeah. won't continue until you interrupt him. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> so good. So brutal. So, this is a Super Nintendo game. <laughs> so, after that poignant moment, 
we're going to go jump off a waterfall. Yeah, what a <laughs> perfect piece of catharsis to yeah. give to everything that's just happened and to Cyan and to allow him to literally leap into a, a, a new existence here. Like, and when you've been through this, Shadow, this is when Shadow pieces yeah. out. He's like, Shadow's nah. like, look. <laughs> I could handle the ghost train, but I'm not jumping off a waterfall, you morons. Right. Yeah, he, he doesn't say anything. He's just like, this is where we this is where we part. <laughs> this is this is where we part ways. He plays it cool, but uh And yeah, it, both doesn't it seem like this was Sabin's plan the whole time, right? Like, oh I know how yeah. I'll get back to the continent. I will jump off this waterfall and let a whole different river wash me back to where I need to go. Yeah. What the hell kind of plan is this? Well, it's a guy who's been living out in nature for years and years, becoming a monk and, and, and figure, you know, I think he feels like he can handle this kind of thing, but there, He's I think there right. is a moment of hesitation for him. And like, Cyan, are you sure this is something you want to do? And Cyan's like, jump off a waterfall right now. Yeah. yeah that's exactly what I want to do. <laughs> what, what else could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Right. If and I die in this fall, like you said, it's not the way he'd want to go out, but he's not going to, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's cool. And, and speaking of paralleling Westerns, they, they don't have the uh, line, I can't swim, are you crazy, it's the fall that's going to kill you. Yeah. But they're jumping off a waterfall. But Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah. So, and then you can fight weird piranhas on the way down. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you obviously. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, video game parts, too. So you end up on the Velt. Another fantastic musical cue that gives you a sense of being somewhere totally different. In real life, uh, the Velt is this open grassland in uh, in southern Africa where colonists would go to kill things. Yeah. <laughs> it's also the name of a short story by Ray Bradbury that is involves a hollow deck kind of thing where these kids who are sick of their parents basically kill their parents with with like a lion well there are parallels here to both of those things whether intentional or not because the Velt is a place where many wild animals roam and there's a gameplay mechanic later on where you can hunt them to learn what they know right right and after a fashion there's a really problematic family dynamic at play here too. Not exactly killing your parents, but there's a, we're about to meet a parent who at the very least needs a wallop upside the head. In, in order to get to the place we need, we want to get to, we need to travel down the serpent trench, which is another, uh, another river, but we need like as, Awesome as Cyan and Sabin are at falling down waterfalls and, and, and being swept down rivers, this one's going to require a little more. We're going to need some sort of a breathing device. We know there is a breathing device hidden somewhere, uh, and we sort of get the idea that maybe this kid that likes to hang out on the veldt knows where it is, or at least can, can get us there. Yeah, there's a, a town. Yeah, the only town on this really probably a full continent here where the Velt exists, is at the very northern end. It's a town called Mobliz. And so we get a bunch of this information from the people there suggesting that they know that this thing exists and also giving us uh, some clues about this wild young boy that if you wander around the Velt and you're attacked by monsters, you will see join the battle and randomly do crazy stuff and run off, maybe attack you, maybe attack the monsters. And uh, you're not quite sure what to do once this happens, but the people in town explain that the one thing they know the boy likes is raw meat. Yeah, so you, so you got to buy some meat. Also, I think, if I recall correctly, I think the breathing device was stolen from Mobliz. So maybe that's why this kid knows where it is. Because it was yeah. shiny, and he liked it, and he took and it. He liked it. And I love that Gao, who is the, the name of the wild boy that we're discussing here, it's kind of a myth. To, not not a myth. That's the wrong thing. He's a... A, a local legend, perhaps? He's, yeah, he's a local legend. You know, they all kind of know. Yeah, if you go out there, there 
the monsters are crazy and that's why nobody really goes out there. But the few who have have reported stories of this crazy kid and there are rumors that if you feed him meat, he might hang around for a while. He's kind of like the Jersey <laughs> Devil. These people. <laughs> it's like... uh, so you can't attack him when he shows up, but that's not cool. Not nice. And he goes, ow, and he runs away. Yeah, yeah. But you can give him meat, and uh, he will get excited, and he will uh, join your party. What a scene, too, by the way. This is another one like we got earlier where Edgar and Locke, in the middle of battle, freak out about Tara's ability to use magic. Uh, This whole thing plays out in the battle scene. Right. In the side-by-side view, and... uh, Cyan, speaking as he does in an old English way of using words like thou and thine and thou art, and and I believe he he says thou art odd uh, to Gao. Again, very true. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yes, he is. And and Gao being sort of a, not a caveman, you're going to live in a cave, but that might be what we would sort of think about, you know, this kind of wild child again and, and begins repeating thou thou over and over again starts calling cyan mr thou uh, to which sabin finds no end of amusement he just cannot get enough of uh, this sudden character dynamic and very very early on we're starting to go back to that theme of found family that he's just lost a young son has cyan and here's this crazy weird child who's just enamored by his shiny armor and his shiny sword and the way he talks and yeah. that, that he's fed you some meat and it's comedic. But when you take a step back again, it's, it's pretty beautiful. Draped in monster hides, eyes shining with intelligence, a youth, Surviving against all odds. And yeah, I really like this idea that in a way, Gao might be stepping into the role of, of son to Cyan's father figure. Uh, Cyan is, I'm pretty sure, the eldest of all our heroes in this game. He is very, uh, he's probably not older than Sid, but Sid's not a playable character. But he does have sort of that... He's the gruff one. He's the cranky one. He's the cantankerous one. He's the one who doesn't understand this newfangled technology. Uh, and he, I think he needs Gao as much as Gao needs them. And if we are remaking this, we would highlight, I think, the father-son dynamic between Cyan and Gao. Yeah, absolutely. The only other thing I want to mention real quick in Mobliz is there is a soldier wounded uh, in the war with the Empire. And he mentions his true love back, uh, back in his hometown. And you can take a letter from the desk and, and take it out to the carrier pigeons and, and send the letter off. And it's, it's pretty small here, but that will come to mean something to one of our characters later on. So then uh, you make your way through uh, Mount Crescent, where Gao assures you there's a shiny, shiny treasure. There are a couple areas where Gao will will react when you uh, get to certain spots on the map. Uh, At one point, he will take 500 GP off Saban and toss it down a hole. (laughs) (laughs) Like you do. The only person who truly understands the value of money. (laughs) (laughs) And then you, uh, you, you find the scuba device. It appears to be one scuba device for three characters, but that's fine. And then... (laughs) And then you can uh, you go down the Serpent Trench. It's kind of dungeony, except you don't really move. It moves you along, and you can sort of choose left or right here and there. Um, there are a couple of caves that you can come to where you can stop and heal. Uh, but eventually, uh, you you wash up in the town of Nikkei, and Nikkei basically functions at this point as a place where you can get on a boat and make your way to South Figaro. Oh, actually, there is another thing real quick. You can go to the pub, and there's this kind of funny but not really scene between Cyan and a dancing girl. She's trying to get him to lighten up. And on the one hand, that's kind of, you know, aha, make the stiff soldier samurai dude crack a smile, but dude just lost his wife, so maybe not that funny. Yeah. Then you get on the boat and go and and make your way to, to everybody else. 
Yeah, and, and that wraps it up for this little mini chapter of the story that we get, the, the story of Sabin meeting Shadow again and Cyan for the first time and General Leo, the poisoning of Doma Castle, the classic memories of the Phantom Forest and the Ghost Train, even the memorable scene of leaping into Baron Falls, really, and, and then discovering the Velt and, and meeting Gao. And they're all just kind of brilliant moments of storytelling that bring even more characters and make the world a little bit more clear of what's at stake. What, what are we fighting the empire for? You know, you can add the Velt and Mobliz to that list of places that we are now fighting for and Doma, certainly whatever's left of it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just, just some high quality stuff. I think some of the scenes that make this game, so beloved that's it for this episode thanks for listening and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us feel free to let us know what we missed got wrong or should have mentioned you can follow us on facebook and twitter at ffweeklypod or you can email us at finalfantasyweekly at gmail.com we are also now on patreon while the podcast is still free to listen to via archive.org or streaming on patreon you can now download it on your regular podcast services and do so for as little as one dollar a month Join us next time when we infiltrate the Empire, steal away one of their generals, and prepare to protect the Esper. Mm-hmm.